0: All right, why don't we open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. That's where we're at. Uh, if you guys are new here, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for several months here, so uh, that's where we're going to pick it up. Chapter 12 is where we're at. Um, we're making our way through this great book. Right now, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. We started off a few weeks ago, and I want to give you guys a quick little preface of this, and then what we'll do is we'll read the passage, and then I'll pray again over this, and then we'll get to work on what's, being, what's going on here. But uh, First and foremost, what's happening here in the story is that Jesus in chapter 12 goes to Jerusalem, he's kind of wrapping up his ministry, and obviously most of us that might be familiar with the narrative, uh, we know that Jesus is going to be crucified in Jerusalem. In other words, uh, for most people, they would view this as not a very, not a very successful uh, trip into Jerusalem. However, if you understand the story, the narrative, it's completely successful because Jesus is going to accomplish what he has set out to accomplish, which is to die in Jerusalem. Um, but at the beginning of the chapter, what we see is that Jesus is going to be confronted by a bunch of religious leaders and people with political agendas, and they try to trap Jesus, try to get Jesus arrested, and then uh, in the latter part of the chapter, which is where we're at, uh, Jesus basically turns the cannons back on them, and Jesus goes into the offense. Jesus basically begins to attack them, and uh, in essence, uh, bring questions to them, demanding answers from them. And so again, this is important because oftentimes we think of Jesus as being really nice, really kind, uh, sort of a pushover, kind of uh, very passive, Uh, but Jesus has a streak in him that he will actually uh, turn and begin to get aggressive on these guys, and this is what we see with Jesus. Uh, Jesus obviously does it in a gentlemanly type of a fashion, but Jesus at the same time will turn the tables on these guys, and that's what we'll be watching here in the story. So I'm going to read the passage that we'll be taking a look at, chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. So if you guys wouldn't mind following along with me, if you guys don't have Bibles, we have Bibles in the back, Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take one, they're yours, we want you guys to have a Bible. So verse 38, chapter 12 says this. And he was teaching, and he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like the greetings in the marketplaces, and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. They devour widows' houses, and for pretense, they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help. We need your insight. We need your wisdom to understand this, to unpack this. Uh, God, again, that this would not just simply be mere information going into our minds, uh, but God, that this would be revelation transforming and changing our hearts. Uh, God, we we need your help. What we don't need here today, God, is just information. Information doesn't change us. Information doesn't make us more loving, but the gospel changes us. That's what we ask for, God, that you would just let the gospel be unleashed uh, over our hearts and bring about transformation. God, that we would be different people, that we would be more loving people, not only to you, but to others. So help us, we pray, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I basically want to jump into looking at three things here today. I'm going to jump right into this, because in essence, what we're going to see is that Jesus uh, comes and turns his attack upon the religious leaders. In fact, uh, in most of our Bibles, it says that Jesus turned this argument now against the scribes. Some of your translations, you have a different translation, actually might say, maybe like King James or author, authorized version, might actually say that Jesus uh, came against the Jews. Uh, this is a little bit misleading, and I think this is actually a very bad or very poor translation. Uh, in fact, I think it's kind of led to sort of an anti Semitic streak because it kind of causes a person to read it a little bit out of a cursory standing that, oh, Jesus is against the Jews. Jesus is not against the Jews, Jesus is himself. Jewish. He's not against the Jews. Jesus is actually turning his argument against what's described here in, I think, a better translation as against the scribes. Now, this is not against all the scribes. Scribes were basically a variation of the Pharisees. Um, All scribes would have been Pharisees. Pharisees was a very strict religious sect of people within Judaism. Scribes would have been people that were sort of given the task of writing down the Bible. And uh, so Jesus then turns against these scribes, uh, and he begins to uh, basically give warnings against these guys, telling the people that are following Jesus, his disciples, as well as the other people, saying, be warned, watch out for the scribes. And he's going to begin to explain why. He basically gives four reasons why we need to be aware of the scribes, uh, the religious people. In short, what I want to basically say, we're going to see Jesus uh, basically against What I'm going to describe as religion, all right? Religion. Oftentimes people have sort of a frustration against religion. Uh, You're actually in good company because so did Jesus, all right? Jesus is basically going to sort of turn his frustration and angst against the religious system. And I'll begin to unpack this for us in a second. But three things that we'll basically take a look at. First of all, we'll see the warning against false religion. So we'll see a warning Secondly, we'll see the anatomy of false religion, what it's broken down into, what it looks like. And then thirdly, we'll basically finish up by really trying to understand how do we avoid false religion or to ask the question, how can we be cured from false religion? And the the assumption that I'm going to basically jump into is that every single one of us in this room, to some degree, struggle with some variant of religion. Now, that might come as a shock to some of you, Because some of you may actually uh, be proud of the fact that you're irreligious. Some of you may be proud of the fact that you're secular. Or maybe you are uh, an antagonist. Or somebody that views yourself as um, kind of just an an agnostic. Or somebody that's an atheist. You don't believe in God at all. And it might come as a shock to you to actually think of yourself as religious. But what I hope to try to prove today is that based upon, uh, hopefully an agreed upon definition of what religion is. Uh, to prove that every single one of us, to some degree, have some level, some degree of religion in which Jesus is basically saying here to his disciples, beware of the scribes, I think can actually bleed over into all of humanity, beware of false religion. That means not only beware of those that promote false religion and devour other people, but also at the same time, beware of religion that creeps up in your own heart that will not only devour yourself, but actually may be devouring other people presently. So with that, I want to begin to basically take a look first of all at the warning. And I find this amazing that Jesus actually warns against uh, false religion, warns against this variant group called the scribes. Again, why I think this is sort of striking is because oftentimes we think of Jesus as being a really super nice guy type of guy that you just kind of want to hang out with at Panera and have a sandwich with, or go and hang out and have coffee, or go for a nice stroll along the beach with Jesus, because he's really nice. We rarely think of Jesus being a guy that's throwing out of warnings. He's like walking around being like, I warn you, watch out for these guys. Stay away from these people. We don't like to think of Jesus like this, because it makes Jesus seem a little bit aggressive. But what I want to try to say is this. If you don't warn against certain things, you are not loving. If you have a mom or dad, or a lot of people here perhaps are moms or dads, have little kids, if you as a mom or dad don't warn, you are not loving. You're very unloving because a good mom, good dad, warns their child regularly, not just once, like I warned them 10 years ago. You warn them regularly. You warn them against things that can be potentially dangerous or deadly. When they're really young, you're warning them a lot. Don't touch that. Don't drink that. Don't stick your head in the toilet. Don't pick stuff up, stuff up on the ground and eat it. Don't do stuff. There's a lot of things that we're constantly warning our kids because we love them. We don't want to see something bad happen to them. So Jesus warns his disciples because he loves them. So warnings are not necessarily because somebody's an aggressor. They're just simply not very nice. Warnings come from people who deeply love, and Jesus deeply loves. But what I want you to notice is that what Jesus does is he warns against these group of people called the scribes. Now, what I want to do real quickly, because again, uh, before we go any further, I want to just kind of make a distinction of what I'm talking about with regard to religion, because I'm going to be using the phrase religion a lot, that Jesus is actually warning against religion or religious mindset or false religion. And I want to at least sort of be fair to the Bible and say the Bible does refer to religion in a positive way. In the book of James, it describes a pure and undefiled religion. It says "Is this, helping the widow and the orphan and so on and so forth. So there is an element of religion that's pure and undefiled, that's good. It's helping other people, loving God, loving other people. Um, but really, that's the only time in which religion is actually kind of referred to as a, in a good, positive light uh, for the most part. Now, um, I'm going to be, for the most part, referring to religion in a negative light, in a bad light. And every once in a while, I may kind of refer to it as as defiled religion or messed up religion or false religion. But for the most part, if I slip and just simply define it as religion, I'm obviously not describing it as pure and undefiled religion. I'm describing it as defiled religion, messed up religion, uh, bad religion, not the band, foul religion, uh, that type of religion, all right? So that's what I want to describe. The second thing that I want to basically do is I want to talk about religion with regard to what it is in terms of working from a common definition. All right, and this is where it might get a little bit unnerving for some of you. Uh, take a look at the definition that we have of religion. I just cut and paste this from a, a website, definition, dictionary, or whatever. And here's—I'll just—I'm going to stick with the first one, so I'm just going to read it and stick with it. Second definition that's up up here, uh, most believe that the first one is a little bit more accurate. Uh, Religion basically is this, respect for what is sacred. Again, uh, an example of this would be like reverence for the gods. But if we just take the first aspect, respect for what is sacred, sacred is something that's separated. Sacred is something that is viewed with high honor, high value, high respect. So if we just simply take this at face value and look at it and say, whatever that we view is sacred and we have respect for that, we... uh, Desire that we long for that we gladly spend money for that. That can be anything. That can be God, big lower, uh, uh, uppercase G. It could be lowercase g, God or gods. That can be football. That can be surfing. It could be your vocation. It could be uh, the human body, as in pornography. The point. The point that I'm making is this: is that anything in our lives that we view as sacred, anything in our lives that we view as high honor, high value, that we devote ourselves to, devote our energies to, devote our mind to, these are things that basically would, I would describe as some form of either secular religion or spiritual religion, and this is how I want to define it. So under this definition, this basically means that every single one of us in this room has something or somebody that we deem as sacred or valuable. The Bible actually describes this as idolatry. In other words, there is something in all of our lives, in all of our minds, It's different for every one of us, that holds the highest honor, highest value in our hearts. Like I said, it could be a job, it could be money, it could be a cause, it could be, um, it could be anything. And most of the times, these things are good things that become elevated to levels of God things. It could be a relationship. You can value love. Love is a good thing. But if you take love and you rip love out of the context of being in a right relationship with God, and you take love and you say, I'm going to find love in a relationship on a horizontal level, and that becomes an ultimate thing that you pursue with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. At some point, you will basically become a secular religious person that is constantly living for your version of love. It could be money, and you get the idea. But the point that I'm making is this. Every single one of us We devote ourselves, we respect something and whatever it is that's sacred. And we give our time, we give our treasure, our money, we give our energy to this thing. This is one of the reasons why men who otherwise might not be super excitable type men can spend hours in front of a television cheering, getting excited, painting their faces blue, watching a football game. And have no problem whatsoever dropping money because that's something they value. The problem is, is not that there's anything wrong with football, there's nothing wrong with any other type of sport, but what happens is, is what what takes place is things oftentimes get misplaced in our lives and we elevate certain things and whenever we elevate certain things we always push other things down. And this is basically a form of religion, secular religion or spiritual religion. So with that being said, some of you are already kind of like, oh, is this really where the message is going to be going today? This is not a good message. I told you, just hold tight. It's going to be a little bit unnerving at first, but begin to at least just listen up and at least take an honest approach and look at this. Because if this is a problem in our hearts, then it needs to be confronted or else we become a part of the problem and we never really live. God loves you too much. To let you keep going in a path of destruction. He loves you. That's why you're here. You're like, I thought I was here just because my friends brought me. Or my husband dragged me in here. Or my wife forced me to here. Made a deal with me. But the reality is you're here because God loves you. He wants to set you free because he loves you. The second thing that I want to begin to take a look at is really the anatomy of false religion. is The way I'm going to basically describe it. The anatomy of false religion it's going to be basically broken down into four things that we're going to see Jesus describe in verses 38 going down to about verse 40. What Jesus is going to do when he describes this warning to his disciples, he's going to tell his disciples, Beware of these scribes, because they love. And again, Jesus uses the word, the the, the phrases of value, not in Mark's account, but in the other accounts, Luke as well as Matthew, Jesus actually describes, he says, these guys, they love. Uh, They love being seen. They love the robes that they wear. So, again, this is an issue of value. It's an issue of religion, something that they have high regard for, something that they give themselves over to. And whatever it is that we love, we gladly, joyfully give ourselves over to it without even questioning it. Would you agree with that? If there's a particular band, let's say, for example, you really, really like, you like their music, I mean, you really, really like their music, and you wouldn't have any problem dropping $150 to go see them. To go see him live because you really like him. But, you know, in other contexts, someone's like, yeah, hey, there's a poor dude. He doesn't have any money. Uh, he needs 150 bucks. And you're like, ah, 150 bucks, really? i got to give that guy some money because it's an issue of values. You really value a band and you'd be happy to, you, you wouldn't even think about dropping money to go get that. But all I'm simply trying to say there's nothing wrong with liking a band. But what I'm trying to say is that what ends up happening in our lives is that we have these misplaced values. And so this is what Jesus is basically saying. So the first thing that Jesus is going to describe in terms of the anatomy of false religion or anatomy of religion is it's going to deal with the issue of identity or the question that corresponds with this, who am I? This was, I believe, at the fundamental root in the heart of what was going on in the lives of the scribes as they were basically being confronted by Jesus and being warned against by Jesus. Here's the issue that Jesus says. He says, these guys, they like to walk around in long robes, and they love greetings in the marketplaces. This is what Jesus is saying. These guys, they like to wear certain clothing, because back in that day, the type of robes that they wear, the Greek word there is stoa, this is a dress, so dudes in dresses. Uh, back in that day, apparently dudes in dresses was actually pretty cool. Uh, certainly not cool today, but back in that day, dudes in dresses signified a man or person of high honor high regard, high respect. So in other words, what these guys were doing is they were living and arranging their life because they were trying to carve out an identity. In their mind, this idea of getting an identity uh, was associated with the type of clothing that they wore. So what they would do is they would get these particular types of robes and extend the borders of them and make them these long flowing robes because the longer and the flowy of the robes uh, indicated how great and who this particular person was. So if you saw a guy walking on the street in a long flowy robe, you'd be like, that's the man. Like, that is the man. Like, I want to be with that guy. I want to know that guy because he's the man. Now, the reality is, it's kind of one of those things for us. We can read the Bible. This is 2,000 years ago. It's a document that obviously has to do with people uh, using clothing to somehow carve out an identity. Isn't it awesome to think that we aren't that primitive anymore? I mean, 2,000 years have elapsed and you know, we are not as primitive to actually somehow think, be so foolish to think that buying clothes are going to give us an identity. Okay, here's the deal, all right? Like some of you are going to get this on your way home. But here's my point. Here's my point. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. We still buy clothes, not just to simply close our nakedness. We still buy clothes because somehow by the clothes that we buy, we are actually not just buying clothes, we're buying an identity. It's why you buy the clothes you buy. That's why you buy the clothes where you buy. That's why you're willing to spend certain levels of money or not spend certain amounts of money because you are looking for some form of an identity. Your clothes don't just simply clothe you. They create you. At least that's the way the lie goes. I'll give you an example of how this basically works out. Surfers. I'll start with myself. I surf. I grew up surfing uh, freshman year in high school. I'll tell you more about that in a second here. But surfing, surfers oftentimes wear flip-flops or shorts or tank tops and they walk around and they're like, dude. All right. I thought that was kind of funny, but, 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 but Surfers have this identity that oftentimes is carved out as that by certain clothing that they wear. You know, you can oftentimes look at a guy and be like, oh, that guy's a surfer. Um, but here's another example. Uh, think about even in our culture. People that are like hipsters, all right, where do they buy their clothes? Uh, thrift stores, all right? Anything that's like hand-me-down, secondhand, that's very cheap, for five bucks, pair of pants, like that's, that's where... I mean, they're not going to go and go spend drop lots of money on clothing because there's something antithetical to that because it's like we don't want to buy into the system. We don't want to drop $300 on a pair of jeans. That's ridiculous. So we're just going to buy a pair of $5 polyester jeans from the thrift store. And the point that I want to make is this: the point that I want to make is this is we can go on even further. This is kind of fun. Uh, let's see, like rockers, all right? People that are in the music, um, oftentimes they they dress in what black, right? They dye their hair black, they wear black, they wear dark colors, because that's what defines them. This is the type of image they have. They are not just simply clothing themselves, they're somehow searching for an identity. The issue here is identity. Who am I? Jesus' day, the religious leaders were like, who are we? We are the ones in long, flowing robes. We're the dudes. We're the men. We're the dudes in dresses that have power and authority and might because we're the dudes in dresses. In our day, based upon the type of person or personality you want to be or the type of identity you want to secure, you're more than willing to drop certain amounts of money on particular types of clothes. If you're somebody that's rich or wants to be rich or identified as rich, you wouldn't be caught dead in a pair of Kirkland jeans. You'd be like, no, that's like for my grandpa. I would never, ever, ever be caught dead in that. Like for you, true religion. I got to have a pair of $250, $300 pair of jeans. I would, wouldn't be caught dead wearing a pair of Levi's or anything from Target because that's not the image, the identity that I want. All right, some of you are like, this message is horrible. All right, I get it, I get it. But maybe it's just because it's hitting too hard at home. But here's my point. Clothes aren't just simply things that we buy to clothe ourselves. When we buy certain clothes, we are actually trying to figure out an identity. And what Jesus is basically saying is be warned of this. Because people that do this, people that live like this, which isn't just simply a religious group 2,000 years ago. This is us today. Be warned. Because what ends up happening, it leads to a place of destruction. Jesus is going to go on to say, Secondly, not only is it an issue of identity, who am I? The second thing is an issue of honor and affirmation. Or, to pose the question, who loves me? Or another question, where do I belong? Where's my sense of belonging? And who really, truly are my friends? And who really, truly loves me? Verse 39 actually tells us, <coughs> he says that these people, they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast. The word best seats, protocathedros, basically just means these were the first seats, the seats of first preeminence. Who sits in the first seats back in that day? The best people. The rich people. The people of affluence. The people of might. The people of greatness. So if you're a religious leader back in that day and you are trying to carve out your identity, then to carry on with this identity, you want to sit with the right people. I mean, if you're going to go to all this trouble and spend money and have a, be a dude in a dress, you want to make sure it counts for something. You want to make certain that you are with the right people. Otherwise, it's all for nothing. So if you're a dude in a dress and you're hanging out with a, at a leper colony, that doesn't really work for your credibility. You want to hang out with the right people. So for them back in that culture is we've got to sit in the best seats in the synagogue because that's where all the best people sit. For us, for you, it's different it's the same. Meaning there's a continuity, though a discontinuity. There's a sense in which we still continue that same mentality, where we want somehow to be associated with the right type of people. And if you're not with the right type of people, let's say if you're a businessman, you're like, I want to be with other businessmen that are successful. You certainly don't want to be with the dude that started a business and flopped. If you're a rich and wealthy person, you definitely don't want to hang out with people that are impoverished and don't have any money to their name. Because somehow that will mar or destroy the identity that you're trying to project of yourself. And Jesus is saying it's dangerous. It's part of the sense of secular and spiritual forms of religion. Bad religion that will destroy us. And this is the way that we all are. Look, let's be honest with us, ourselves. This starts in junior high and even before. I mean, this is, this is like blacktop back in third grade, right? This is like For me, I remember my, my, my oldest memories of this. Is like when I was in third grade. And the very first time I started kind of thinking about who are the people that I really want to hang out with, and I don't remember the dude's name. All I remember is whenever we had like races, he always won. I'm like, I want to hang out with that guy. He, he's fast. Like, that guy's fast. Every race, he always wins. Like, when we're playing dodgeball, he's always dodging the balls. I'm like, that guy's awesome. I want to be with the fast guy. And this is the way that we are. And so we try to figure out like ways to sort of be with those people that somehow make us feel and have an identity that somehow makes us feel better because it's really the issue of where do I belong and who's really going to love me who's really going to honor me and affirm me this is the issue this is the issue where we're all at I'm going to tell you guys something that I normally don't tell a lot of people so it's got to be between you and I okay I'll tell you a personal story when I was 8th uh, grader, um, my parents had divorced actually about a year or so before that. So I, you know, I was kind of in this place of trying to figure out who am I and I started doing all sorts of crazy things in 8th grade and getting in trouble and doing stuff that I regret, you know, later, but the reality is, what ended up happening, Happening. I started kind of hanging out with guys, I, it was really kind of the first time in my mind I started really kind of making steps towards actually building out an identity, and so I started hanging out with these dudes that were like, back in that day, I mean, this is a long time ago, okay, because I'm, I'm 42 years old, so I'm pretty old, some of you probably don't even remember any of this, but back in the day, it was like, uh, these guys that I was hanging out with, these, these, these guys were uh, rockers, alright, these were heavy metal rockers, and that means like, I remember the first time I actually bought, like, a Metallica shirt. I'm like, dude, I am awesome. I got a Metallica shirt. This is awesome. Started parting my hair down the middle. I'm like, dude, I'm amazing. And then I get to high school. I get to high school. In my first quarter in high school, I remember some dude telling me, he's like, dude, you look lame. And uh, I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, you know, bro, look, if you want to get the girls, like, you're not going to get the girls looking like a rocker, all right? Uh, you're going to get the girls by being a surfer. I grew up in Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach, uh, you know, obviously associated with surfing. And he's like, oh, you gotta, you gotta get, you're going to get the girls by becoming a surfer. So at that point, I'm like, all right, whatever, I'll become a surfer. So I literally like, changed. I switched teams. I took off one jersey, put on another jersey. I'm like, I'm jumping sides. And I changed that fast. I went out and bought a whole new wardrobe. And I went out, I, for the, obviously, the first few months, you know, just like, that dude's a poser. Because, yeah, I was. I was posing as something I hadn't been... Yeah, and I started surfing, and then I got hooked. I'm like, I love surfing. It's amazing. And so my whole rest of my life was changed by that. But that's a whole other story. But the point that I'm making is this, is that what ends up happening is the type of people you hang out with define and continue to hold on to your identity. So in my high school, it basically broke down to this. The cool people on campus were the surfers. And I'm like, "I I want to be part of that club. I want in. What do I got to do? Got to have a surfboard you got to wear flip-flops, you got to wear shorts, wear tank top. I'm like, sign me up. I'm in. What's the cost? I don't know. Whatever you, wherever you can find a cheap shirt, wherever you can find cheap shorts, wherever you can find cheap flip-flops and cheap surfboard, I'm like, I'm in. I'm signing up for that club. And everyone went back. But the point that I'm making is this, is that we want desperately to be part of a club, be part of a group of a sense of belonging. And this is what was happening in Jesus' day. He says, beware of these people because they wear the long-flowing, flobs, the long-flowing robes, they wear and associate themselves with certain groups and clubs of people where they want to be seen in the right spots because they desperately are constantly trying to figure out where they belong, who's going to accept them, who will love them, who will appreciate them, who will be the ones that affirm them. The third thing that Jesus then goes on to point out is I think is this issue of security because Jesus then warns, he says you've got to watch out for these people because here's what ends up happening. They devour widows, houses, this the, uh, demands a little bit of unpacking here. What, what this basically meant is that these people, um, a lot of the scribes, they, some of them didn't really get money from the temple, from the synagogues. And uh, so what they survived off of and lived off of was basically fundraising. And they would go to these, uh, these widows who obviously were living off of an inheritance from their deceased husband. And they would basically convince them, saying, hey, I'm doing God's work, so would you mind just kind of signing your inheritance over to me? And this is what they would do. And they would do this on many different levels, on many different occasions, to many different widows. In essence, they would devour the widows, devour their inheritance, which is what a house was. They would devour them in order to secure their position, in order to secure their identity. Here's what happens. When you have an identity based upon a value of something that's subordinate to God, meaning if you love something other than God, whether that's a position of power, or a position of honor, or whether it's, you know, you want money or something like that, the more that you're trying to build your identity upon that thing, the more you try to posture your life to be in that circle of friends, the more you will be prone to devour other people to sustain, to protect, to secure your place. Because you don't want to lose it. One of the best ways to identify what idols you have in your life is to ask yourself, what would happen if those things were gone? What would happen if they were threatened? Because idols, when they're threatened or when they're taken away, it's not as if we just simply get sad or get bummed, but we become totally destroyed. This is one of the reasons why God in his love for you says don't make any other idols other than me. Worship me, love me. I've said this before because at the end of the day, you as a human being, are either as strong or as fragile, depending upon what you build your life on. If you build your life upon a false god, false hope, boyfriend or girlfriend, or a position of honor amongst the rank of a bunch of other people, the moment you're no longer of utility, the moment you're of no longer value in that group, and they turn their back on you, you're not just bummed. You're absolutely devastated. Your entire world comes undone. But if your life is anchored in Jesus, when trials and tribulations come, it'll be painful, it'll be hard, but you won't come undone because you've built your rock upon a God that will never break. You've built your life upon a God that will never be taken away. You've built your life upon a God that will not rust, will not be stolen, will not disappear. You are only as durable or as fragile as the god or gods that you build your life upon. So what ends up happening here is you have to figure out ways to secure all of this and this is what these people were doing. This is why they were devouring widows because they needed to maintain their lifestyle, secure their position. This in our day and age, this might look like somebody, you know, taking out constant ongoing loans. So you might not be devouring your mom or your dad or your rich uncle. You might be devouring yourself under debt. Because you're trying to maintain a lifestyle, to uphold the picture of who you are in sort of some sort of a great status. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of devouring going on. The third thing that we see here is, or the fourth thing I should say is this issue of atonement. It's a big word. I'll define it in a second here. But verse 40 says this. He says, and then for pretense, these scribes, they make long prayers. So here's what's going on, I think. Jesus says, for a show, for a play, to, in other words, to keep up the ongoing facade, the picture, that they're really spiritual people, they pray really long, loud prayers. So here's what I think is happening and what's taking place. And I throw out the word atonement, and here's what I mean. The word atonement basically means to cover something, to cover sin, to cover shame, to cover guilt. That's what the word atonement means. It actually comes from the Old Testament where people who were guilty, people who had sinned, they would come to God, they would bring an offering to God, and as it would bring the offering to God, they would have this offering offered by the priest before God, and it would cover their sin or atone their sin. It would bring about a covering. So what ends up happening, I believe, that Jesus is saying with these religious leaders, because they don't know what their identity is, they're trying to carve it out, because they're trying to figure out a sense of belonging and they're doing whatever they can to get into that club, get into that group, get into that circle of people to belong. And because they've got to sustain that, so they're devouring widows' wives, They feel widows' houses. They feel really bad. There's a sense of uncompleteness in their life. But they've got to keep the straight up. They've got to keep the game going. So what they do is they look ultra-spiritual. Religious people are sometimes the worst people of all. They're confusing. Because to the general public, we look at them and we're like, oh, they're representatives of God. Some of them may be. True, genuine, pure, undefiled religious people are. Because they love God and love their neighbor. But people locked in to a defiled form of religion, they look very similar to the undefiled religious person because they pray, they read their Bibles a lot, They carry around a coffee mug with the scripture on it. They have a verse on the back of their car and their bumper sticker. They're all about religious trinkets. But they're very critical and judgmental and rude and harsh and critical of everybody. It's just a facade. They may pray more than anybody. They may give more money away than anybody. They may be more devout than anybody. But inwardly, they're just simply trying to cover up their own guilt and shame. But you know, there's also a way in which oftentimes people can, what I would describe that as terms of religious atonement, secondly, I would look at this as just describe it as like secular atonement. Because again, like I said, you might look at this and be like, I'm not religious. I'm irreligious. But the reality is there's all forms of atonement going on, even secular atonement. Here's what I mean. Secular atonement might look like this. You might have a person that's totally irreligious. They don't believe in God. They're not religious. They don't go to church. They recognize something's not quite right in their heart, not quite right in their life. And so, what they do is they figure out ways to make things right. So, they're like, oh, you know, i go help an old lady across the street. They're like, you know what, there's a homeless dude that needed like a burrito, so I'll buy him a burrito. They're not doing it out of an overflow of love. They're doing it because they feel like crap inside and they want to cover it up. So, they cover it up. They give money away, they help old ladies across the street. They do all sorts of things that look really nice, really good to the general public, but inwardly, they're just trying to cover it up. They might be people that give more money away than a lot of other people. In fact, there's a lot of people that can be totally secular, not believe in God, not have a heart overflowing in love and joy for God, but they give a lot of stuff away. And they give it away because they're trying to atone for their own defilement. This is what I would describe as a positive, secular atonement. But there's also negative secular atonement. And we see this a lot sometimes in self-destructive behavior. Sometimes this happens amongst people, like in high school, college people, where they cut themselves. This, becomes an, this is an ongoing issue in our culture. People cut themselves. They take things and they cut their arms, make, make themselves bleed. And this is a form of basically saying, I don't like my life. I don't like the choices I've made. I don't like the things that I've done. I've got to pay. I've got to inflict pain and sorrow and hurt and blood From myself it's got to come out of me something's got to be paid for the shame and the guilt that I feel so enters in self destructive behavior but the beauty of the gospel is what we'll finish on is that you don't have to cut yourself to draw blood because Jesus spilled his blood to cover your shame this is where the gospel finishes and this is what I want to close with and conclude with and it's this issue of like, how do we get cured? How do we avoid false religion? And I want to wrap it up with this thought because really at the end of the day, what we're basically talking about is the issue is with our heart. We love the wrong things because we love and value the wrong things. How do we pry our hands off of this love affair of things that are bad? How do we change our heart? Because if you haven't you know, examined your heart closely at all yet and you're like, Maybe you have, and you're like, how do I just make myself love something else? It's not always that easy, right? I mean, how many of you have ever tried, just like, I tried religion once, I tried Christianity once, I tried to make myself better once. Again, we're not saying, and I'm not in any way suggesting, make yourself good. I'm saying, how do we allow our hearts to fall in love with something that's not destructive? And this is where the gospel comes into play. And this is what Jesus is going to say. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 10 through 12, which is sort of the corollary story in one of the other uh, parallel gospel accounts, Jesus or Mark adds this phrase that Jesus says. Next slide. He says this, you have one instructor and Jesus says the Christ. And we already know the word Christ means the king. Jesus is the king. So what Jesus is saying, you only have one instructor, not the scribes, not the Pharisees, but the king, the Christ, I'm the Christ is what Jesus is saying. You only have one instructor. So, you know, at this point you can be like, well, what's the big deal? Why would we want to follow the Christ or this instructor? Jesus, why are you better than scribes or Pharisees or religious leaders? Or why are you better than or much tr- m- more trustworthy to follow than my own conscience? Here's what Jesus says. The reason why in verse 11 is because the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And here's what Jesus is saying. The reason why I qualify best and I'm most suitable to be your instructor, to be your king, to be your Lord, is because I was the greatest who became the least. Because I was the one that had everything, that relinquished it all, so that you who have nothing can be given everything. And within Jesus' words, what we see is a picture of the cross. Because on the cross, what we see is a king. Not coming to judge wicked evildoers like us who have somehow gone astray in loving the wrong things and we've taken advantage of other people and we've devoured other people and we've tried to build our own little kingdom and our own little identity and we push other people aside to continue to do this. What we see in the cross is not a king coming to shed the blood of evildoers, but what we see is a king coming to have his blood shed for evildoers. On the cross, what we see is we see the work of Jesus really addressing each one of these fundamental questions that we just went through, and I'll go through them one more time with you to take a look at it. The fundamental question of who am I? The issue of identity. The one that all of us struggle with. One of all of us are trying to figure out some way, shape, or form. All of us have struggled to wrestle with this at some point in our life. Who am I? Who will I become? What type of a person do I want to be? Who am I really? On the cross, what we see is Jesus, he laid aside his identity in order to actually gift you with one. In Christ, what you find is not a God who steals your identity and disposes of it, It's what you find is a God who actually causes your true you, your true self, your true identity to take on a form of true life. That's the picture of what Jesus does. How did he do that? Because on the cross, Jesus enters into darkness. And in darkness, darkness is another way of saying, you're a nobody. You don't need a name. You don't need an identity because that's what darkness does. It strips you of everything. And Jesus plunged himself in the darkness so that you and I who are in darkness, who are lonely and lost trying to figure out who we are, can actually be given a true identity. The second thing that we see, the question of who really loves me and where's my sense of belonging. What we see is Jesus... On the cross, He relinquished His place of highest honor and glory at the right hand of the Father. This is why we have to believe in the message that Jesus was not just a guy who came onto the earth, but that Jesus preexisted all things and Jesus left heaven. He added to His divinity humanity, but He laid aside all of this. He relinquished His place of highest honor and praise in order to raise you and I To the place of highest honor and praise. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Third thing is we see this issue of how do I protect my position? And some of us, we exhaust so much energy trying to protect and secure what little things that we have because somehow we think this is what my identity is built upon. And you exhaust so much energy trying to hold on to and cling to these things. But on the cross, what we see with Jesus is we see one who left his position of highest honor and he makes himself vulnerable. Not to devour others, but to be himself devoured by death. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon called Christ Exalted, basically said something to this element, this sense, where he says, death on the cross devoured Jesus. But it was within the belly of death that Jesus Poisoned death in its innermost being so that death died in the death of Christ. This is what happened to Jesus. He was devoured so that you and I who have either been devoured by religion or have played any type of role in devouring other people, simply to secure a position, to obtain an identity, Jesus was devoured so you and I who have been devoured have been devoured can actually be given a place of belonging. A family with a father who's a good father. The final thing is this issue of how do I cover my guilt? On the cross, what we see is Jesus, his blood shed for us that removes, doesn't just cover our sin, our guilt, but completely removes it. This is why in the book of Revelation, the picture of the church is that they are a family of people clothed in white linen like a virgin bride. The reason why we can be given complete purity is because what we have is a king that doesn't come and take from us and steal from us and devour from us because he has to obtain his identity. What we have is a God, a king who comes to us, strips himself of all things, reduces himself, allows himself to Plunge into darkness, to be devoured by death so that you and I who are trying desperately to give ourselves an identity, to secure a position, to find a tribe can actually be given a home, given a life, and have our sins washed and cleansed. Look, at the end of the day, religion basically says this, you need to prove yourself to others in order to be affirmed and loved, and that's exactly where some of us perhaps might be. You're trying desperately to... To be affirmed and loved by other people. And what you're doing is you're spending an awful lot of your time, exhausting your energy, trying to be proved, trying to prove yourself. But here's what the gospel says the gospel says that God proved himself on the cross because you are loved. Because you're loved. You don't earn God's love. You don't have to somehow do something to get God to love you. You are loved already by God. To the degree that you see this and understand this, this changes you. You see, you don't have to exhaust yourself trying to prove your credentials. Because what we see on the cross is Jesus who exhausted Himself to give you His credentials. This is what we see in Jesus. He gives you everything that he is to the degree that you see that this God who created you, who made you, who knows you, and knows how you're wired to the degree that you see that he loves you. You know what this does? This reorders what you love. Because when you see someone who loves you with this much intensity, it's hard to not love them back. It's hard to not want to just cast yourself entirely at their feet and just say, I'm yours. To the degree that you see that this God loves you and went through this level of exhaustion because he loves you. That will change what you love. And when it changes what you love, it will change how you view your identity. It will change how you view your relationship with other people. And rather than using them to somehow get yourself an identity, rather than devouring them somehow to secure your little position in Christ, you can actually find yourself totally at rest. You have an identity. Your identity is not based upon hanging out with a bunch of rock stars. Your identity is not based upon your little surfer friends. Your identity is not based upon the little tribe of people that you hang out with or the type of clothing that you wear. Your identity is rooted in a king. Who loves you with all of his heart and might and strength. And he demonstrated that love to us on the cross. That liberates you. That frees you to love other people. To love people that have nothing in common with you. To love people that might not even be of the same social, economic, or ethnic backgrounds. That you can love these people because you're not loving them in order to get something out of them. You're loving them because you have something to give them, because you have been loved by a king with such great love. To the degree that you trust and believe this good news, you'll be free. I want to invite you into that, to worship him, to love him, to confess your sin to him. I'm going to have the team come on up, and we're just going to close with a song or two of worship. And I want to invite you to worship this God. Uh, if you'd like, partake of communion. We have communion in the back. Little three areas back there. If you're a family, you're more than uh, welcome to go grab your kids if you like. And bring them in here and do communion with your children. If you're a dad and you're here, leading your family would be an awesome opportunity. For you to just take your wife and your two little kids. Or how many kids you got? Two. I got two. I, just, I guess I assume everybody's got two. But you can take your kids and you can just lead your kids into worshiping God by bringing them into uh, the time of communion. Uh, We have some rugs in the front. If you just want to just get before Jesus and get on your knees or sit before him and just pour out your heart before him, no matter what's going on in your life, I want to invite you, you're more than than welcome to just come on forward and just sit down before Jesus and worship him and love on him. Pour out your sin before him, knowing that he loves you. He's not going to crush you. He will receive you and he will love you. If you're here this morning and there are things in your life you need prayer for, Uh, We'll have some people up on the side over here over by the cross. I'd be happy to pray for you. Um, Why don't we do this? Why don't we all stand? I want to invite you guys to just all stand and we're going to sing, we're going to worship and partake of communion together. Like I said, you can just worship Jesus on your hands and your knees. I'm just going to pray and invite you guys into that. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you did for us. Thank you for how much you've demonstrated your love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. That religion is not just simply something out there occupying some sort of space or time. It's something that all of us is inside of every one of our hearts. It plagues us. It's like a disease. We need to be saved from that disease. That's why we need you, Jesus. That's why we need to be able to see what you did for us on the cross and love you as a result of that. So God, I pray right now as we sing that you would just bring fresh images of Jesus and his love into our hearts. Let the gospel melt us. Let the gospel rearrange what we love and how we love it so that we would love the right things rightly. So help us right now, God, we pray.